Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Transfigured. I am here with my friend Hank, but this is not part of our Church Fathers series. Um, this is really actually more of an interview of Hank. Hank uh, reached out to me. He's been reading Pope Benedict's writings on liturgy, and he really wanted to uh, have a chance to share some of his thoughts and learnings from that reading. And so this is going to be uh, mostly an interview of Hank. Um, I'm sure I'll have some thoughts as we go along. But uh, when we get started, I mean, Hank, you've spilled some of your um, biography a little bit in our church series. But in case anyone's coming to this video alone or hasn't watched all of our church father series, do you want to give at least a little bit of background on yourself and how you came how you came to be interested in the subject? Sure. Well. Um... I became a, a Christian probably, uh, well, in the 70s through a variant of the Japuza movement, um, which is Jesus People USA. And uh, that uh, was highly evangelical, very much the altar call, very much the baptism. Um, and immediately because of my... Um, my interest in writing, uh, reading, uh, first person I grabbed and read all his books was C.S. Lewis. And um, I became sort of a, um, where Sam, you're a uh, biblical Unitarian and had your own problems with the church. I had a pro my own problems with the church because I started asking questions like, I'm reading the first three chapters of Genesis and this doesn't make sense as a story. <laughs> Um, really? It was six days because there's light and then there's sun and there's this and there's that. And I was sort of told, you know what, uh, sit down and be quiet. Don't ask these questions. So I just sort of set it aside for years. Um, and as time went on, I just found that I was not very well satisfied with the evangelical church writ large um, for we'll for talk a, a little bit about your experience in Willow Creek. Well, I mean, Willow Creek was really the a, a Japuza on steroids. It was all about getting people in the seats and getting them to become Christians. Right. And it was happening when the mainline church had finally disintegrated. The Catholic church was in a clown show period and the, um, um, the what we would call the traditional evangelical churches were cloistered. They were in their and, small communities. And there was lots of baby boomers moving to the suburbs and having kids. And the suburbs were not great communities. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, um, my dad explained growing up in Chicago that you had a community and you did all these things for people. You bowled, you went to shows, you did everything. There's your community. The suburbs, it was much harder to have a community. And it was very sterile, and it was the brutalist 70s architecture. I would love to show people the 70s, when I went in the late 70s to College of DuPage, which is in DuPage County, it it, it looked pretty bad. Um, and so you, you had this sterile environment where kids were growing up through their greatest generation parents, and the church was unable to work with us. Kids thought this was lame. 
And Bill Hybels created something that wasn't lame and people just flocked to it like crazy. So the, I will always say this, they were very good at getting people in the door, very good at get pe getting people to make an ascent of faith, not very good at teaching. Mm -hmm. Okay, just not, not very good. And really bad with people who were, because one of the things we find with this little corner of the internet they have people who are all over the place. And the problem is, and Jonathan Pajot talks about multiplicity and unity. The problem is that the churches back then didn't like multiplicity too much, but they really loved unity. So it became a place for a lot of people. So I, I after a while, got married and headed off to um, high church Anglicanism. Um, Kate, uh, my lovely wife, we then moved to a Bible church. And then finally, uh, the last four years have been uh, Catholics. And the funny thing is we, we both believe the Lord led us here because I was satisfied intellectually and my wife was satisfied mystically. Usually you have a lot of stories where people enter the Catholic church where it's one member of the, the couple that's sort of pushing the process of the other couple member saying, eh, I'm not so sure. Okay. Both of us were like, yeah, this is, this is where we want to be. Um, we feel both felt, felt that that was the leading of the Holy spirit. So, um, at that time I started reading early church fathers. That's when I reached out to you and said, Sam, I, I'm learning some things that are freaking me out. And you had already had a, um, relationship with the early church fathers because you were reading them to basically buttress right. biblical no, unitarianism. That's not quite fair. I was trying to figure out where this idea of the Trinity came from. And I was sort of convinced that, well, all these Trinitarians I see now have such terrible arguments that presumably right. there must have been someone in the past who was better at explaining and arguing for this thing than the people I'm running into now. <laughs> that was really why I started reading okay. the early church fathers. Well, it's still it's still about your biblical Unitarianism. It's just well, I mean, I, I was exploring Trinitarianism. I wanted to make sure I wasn't wrong. Right. I, I wasn't trying to defend. I like. I honestly didn't know ahead of time going into that exercise that it would buttress my biblical Unitarianism. I just wanted to learn what the early church fathers thought. Right. And so we've had this conversation for a few years now. Um, my favorite still being Origin, um, because I think it's funny. Uh, we'll talk about Pope Benedict in a few moments. He liked to quote Origin. Yeah, I know. Okay. That. Um, and so I think that uh, what it has is steepened my appreciation for the, what, you know, obviously I get around with people, the apostolic church, the, the Catholic church. It's deepened my appreciation because the Catholic church hasn't severed itself from, its, from the history of the church. Well, I think a lot of times the conversations we have and listening to other people who are very well-meaning and very intelligent is they have cut themselves off. And sometimes the conversations that they have, it's like, yeah, it's sort of limited. You're not, you're not getting it all. You're not seeing it all. Um, you know, obviously if I ran a seminary, whether it was Catholic or Protestant, I think that teaching of the early church fathers would have to be foundational. 
Mm-hmm. You can't understand our faith without it because we actually live it. We actually refer to it without even knowing it. And so um, what interests me was I read uh, Pope Benedict's book a few years back, Introduction to Christianity. I'm like, wow, this thing's a mind blower. And then I read him all his writings on liturgy. I'm like, um, his idea of worship, I think, would be very interesting for both for Catholics and Protestants to understand. He sees it a little differently than a lot of us do. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Benedict's career and biography. Um, we know that he was the most recent pope, um, but how did he get there? And, and how did he become the sort of thinker he was? Um, well, so Pope Benedict was born Joseph Ratzinger in, in April 16, 1927, uh, Holy Saturday. Um, he was born in Bavaria. Um, what was funny as you read during World War II, his dad was a big anti-Nazi, and his family suffered because of his father's anti-Nazism. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and so I'll just read a little here. Ratzinger's family, especially his father, bitterly resented the Nazis, and his father's opposition to Nazism resulted in demotions and harassment of the family. So, but. Ratzinger, at age 14, was conscripted into the Hitler Youth. Okay, so that was pretty, some people had a problem with that. Well, conscripted doesn't mean that someone puts their arm this around This wasn't you. a voluntary thing back then. Oh, you're in. <laughs> Here's yeah. the gun at your head. You're in, yeah, okay? Right. Um, or your family's head. Yeah, yeah. and so, um, so he was in the seminary in 1943 when this happened, and they yanked mm-hmm. him out. Uh, when the war ended, um, he was u- interned as a U.S. prisoner of war, um, and as, as he was released on June 19, 1945. Um, the Allies actually used their home as a base of operations once they took over that part of Germany. So he enters into the seminary um, and graduates from the seminary um, and becomes a, a, a prolific writer. So in 1953, his, and you have to understand something. There's, in the European method, you get, you get your doctor, but if you want to go further, you have to write two dissertations. So in 53, he wrote a dissertation on Augustine of Hippo called, that was titled The People in the House of God and Augustine's Doctrine of the Church. And then he wrote another um, uh, which qualified him for the professorship. You couldn't just write a dissertation to become a professor. You had to write numerous things to become a professor. And he becomes a professor writing on Bonaventure. Bonaventure was a scholastic at the same time as Thomas. But where Thomas went towards the Aristotelians, Bonaventure went to the Platonists. And what we're going to find with Pope Benedict is he's definitely a, a Neoplatonist and a knowledgeable Neoplatonist, and he's going to be kicking back at Thomistic theology as it has worked within the church and worked within the liturgy. Um, He is definitely not, he doesn't dislike Thomas. He is just not, he thinks that Thomistic theology and the um, 
its integration into the liturgy was insufficient and took people away from God. Okay. Mm -hmm. His big thing was we need to get back to worship. He's huge on getting back to worship. So he's big on Bonaventure, which said, of course, because of Bonaventure, it gets him into Augustine and it gets him into the early church fathers, which he becomes very conversant with. And so one of the first things I want to read is from his introduction to Christianity. So the first thing he says in the introduction to Christianity that writes about how ancient societies worshipped is that they gave something to God to expiate their sin. Think about the Old Testament that I would have to go to the temple and I give a peace offering, a free will offering, a sin offering, right? A doves, a bull, whatever that is, a lamb, right? And the Joseph Ratzinger writes, in the New Testament, the situation is almost completely reversed. It is not man who goes to God with a compensatory gift, but God who comes to man in order to give to him. And what is God giving to man? Jesus. Right? And then the New Testament does not say man conciliates God as we really ought to expect, since after all, it is they who failed, not God. It says on the contrary that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So the first thing he says is, hey, um, the way this works is you're not, it's God giving you the gifts, okay? Yeah. And then in this introduction to Christianity, further on, he says, accordingly, in the New Testament, the cross appears primarily as a movement from above to below. It stands there not as a work of expiation that mankind offers to a wrathful God. Okay, so we're we see there's he's already taking a, a little poke at, at at a certain theology that shall not be named, um, mm -hmm. but as an expression of the foolish love of God that gives itself away to the point of humiliation in order thus to save men, it is approached to us not the other way about. Now. I want to stop here for a second and bring in Tom Holland because Tom Holland talks about how awful the cross was seen by early Christians for 300 years. And Pope Benedict sort of references that in his writing saying the humiliation. There was nothing more humiliating than the crucifixion. Nothing. It was designed to be humiliating. That, Correct. The, the, the Romans were thinking that what is both painful and humiliating at the same time? That's what crucifixion right. was designed to do. Now, the money quote in, the, in this area from, from Pope Benedict, the essential form of Christian worship is therefore rightly called the Eucharista. As Catholics, we call it the Eucharist, Thanksgiving. Um, the word Eucharist in Greek is from the word you, which is good or right, and yep. charis, which is the word for gift or grace. Like right. uh, if it, a charismatic Christian, right, it, that's from the word charis, which is gifting. And so it's a good gift or uh, a, a good thanks. Correct. It's, excellent. In this form of worship, human achievement is not placed before God. So again, what's he doing? He's saying, 
On the contrary, it consists in man's letting himself be endowed with gifts. We do not glorify God by supposedly giving to him out of our resources as if they were not his already, but by letting ourselves be endowed with his own gifts and thus recognizing him as the only Lord. So this is a foundation of how it's going to um, inform his views of the liturgy that when I go to a mass, I'm not giving anything to God. He's feeding me. He's, he's coming down. He's here. See, I think one of the things that we have where we're having a meeting crisis is that we, and Paul Vanderclay's worked on this, and even John Verveke, we split. God's here. I'm down here. And yeah, there's maybe some spiritual and Pope Benedict saying nonsense. It's all, it's both in the spirit and in the body. It's all integrated together and it's not just separate. So I have like a half agreement and a half disagreement, I think, with this idea. Because to me, I mean, Jesus's perfect life and faithfulness unto death by crucifixion is a human achievement. So when Jesus is being offered up, there is a sense that this is a human uh, achievement of a human life perfectly well-lived, well pleasing to God. But in a certain sense, this is also God giving us his son in a way that we didn't deserve and earn ourselves. Um, and I agree, of course, with you know God reconciling the world to himself through Christ. But... I, I feel like Benedict might not be holding both of those things. He seems to be almost overemphasizing the from aboveness and the God givenness, but not fully acknowledging Jesus's own human achievement. Well, well let's get into that as we go on, because that's okay. uh, that's um, and I understand your position based on that. Jesus, you know, you're a biblical Unitarian. <laughs> so it's it's criticism well, received and understood. In any Christology, you have to have a human there. You can't you can't right. not have a human Jesus in there or right. else you're missing something. <laughs> but but you, but if you're a Trinitarian like me, you also have a divine Jesus. Yeah, so well, don't just don't forget the human part. Oh I, I I it's it's very hard to when you go to church and you have a big cross with Jesus hanging on it. You you can yeah. uh, that 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 uh, if you're if you're paying attention, if you're looking at the floor, then you possibly you're right. Um, now, Although I I will say in the notes that you sent me, uh, Ratzinger almost always says God and His Son or something like that, and I appreciate that sort of language. That there's that this is the Son of God, and sometimes right. people are always like, "Well, this is just God Himself." It's like, well, then who's He offering Himself to? You know, and, and so I feel like He does a good job of keeping the role of father and son distinct. And some people are way too blurry about that. Well, let's, let's stop for a second. He's German. Okay. And I'm, I'm not saying this teasingly. <laughs> Germans are very precise. Okay. Um, they may be bad at some things, but as coming from a German family, the one thing that Germans have no truck for is imprecision. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, um, the, the one I think I find Benedict easy to read, but two, he's precise. He he doesn't try to. He's he's going to try to 
uh, unveil things, not veil them, right? In, in poor writing or, yes, um, because it's better to say, it, 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 for the sake of conversation and sake of, of learning, God and his son. You can't say God, okay? Because then you get, you, you, you get into some real trouble. Now, here's the interesting thing about how Pope Benedict became known, right? So one, he's really influenced by an Italian German named Romano Giordani, who taught at the University of Munich when he was going there, who basically was the first guy to say um, the Thomistic liturgy of the church writ large is not, is not working. It's taking people away from the worship of God. Okay? And so Benedict never wanted to be a bishop. He wanted to be a professor. He taught at five institutions. He was not interested. I, I think his great line is when he became pope, he felt like the guillotine, that his neck was at the guillotine. <laughs> okay, this, maybe why he's my, one of my favorite popes ever is he's a guy who didn't want to be pope. Okay, which means maybe he's the right guy to be pope. So. Um, Might also explain why he retired. <laughs> yes. Um, and. So the so Ratzinger started with so Ratzinger becomes very well known by becoming the chief theologian of Cardinal Frings during Vatican II. And most people don't know who Cardinal Frings is, but during Vatican II, he was one of the most senior cardinals. So anytime there was something to get up and speak about, he was one of the first speakers, and he was blind. So Ratzinger's writing everything for him. As a matter of fact, how Frings met Ratzinger is there was something for an Italian conclave that they asked Frings to write for. Ratzinger wrote, wrote it for him as someone Frings didn't know. Frings read it and just sent it forward. Yeah. <laughs> didn't even edit it. Just said, so here it, it is. It's sort of like the relationship between Bishop Alexander and Athanasius, that Athanasius was this young, smart guy who is sort of like the assistant to um, Bishop Alexander at the Council of Nicaea. And yep. the bishop had the authority and the gravitas, but uh, Athanasius had a lot of the energy and the ideas. Yep. So here's where, this is where Ratzinger starts challenging during Vatican II, the dominant Catholic teaching that was a theology that was somehow contained in small packets of information rather than understanding revelation. He's saying, no, you have to understand revelation, the unveiling of our eyes and seeing God, right? Okay. Ratzinger stated the liturgical movement was in fact an attempt to overcome reductionism, this reductionism, the product of abstract sacramental theology to teach us to understand the liturgy as a living network of tradition that is taken concrete form and cannot be torn apart into little pieces, but they has to be seen and experienced as a living whole. That was radical, but it wasn't, but it wasn't radical if you read the church fathers. It's not radical if you read Augustine. By the way, he does something in his writings. He calls Augustine a mystic. Okay. I've, I've not read enough of Augustine to know if he's a mystic or or not, but he has enough Neoplatonism in him where I suspect that he had. And I, 
if you remember, I from yeah. Augustine's own biography, he um, really practiced Neoplatonic uh, meditation and sort of mental ascent. Like the, the Neoplatonists were all about sort of intercontemplation where you think about God and by doing that, you ascend in your mind up to the highest realms or something yeah. like that. And Augustine used to do that. He said he had some success with it, but not repeated success. And that that was part of what led him to look for something more and deeper. And that was Christianity. So I think that Augustine was a mystic. Although it should be noted, I was reading uh, Servetus last night. And he doesn't call Augustine a mystic. He calls him an idiot, which is uh, a slightly different take. But anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, here's something that... I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with Ratzinger. Ratzinger believed that the Sabbath is simply not a remembrance of what has passed, but an ex, active exercise of freedom. The liturgy derives its greatness from not what it is, but what we do with it. Ratzinger goes back to the inception of Christian worship and states, at the beginning, the church operated within the Jewish synagogue. And we all forget about that. I, I love listening to people that don't understand. No, no, no. They were worshiping at home. Uh, no, the first Christians were worshiping at the temple, okay? And we're worshiping at home. You're looking at the next iteration when, when Paul goes out and does, uh, and when the church has its dysphoria. But initially, the, the apostles, as we know, prior to Paul, they were worshiping at the temple. They thought that Jesus was, of course, the logical outworking of the of of sacred scripture, what we now call the Old Testament, um, and so so it then what says there's a ritual, right? Okay, because when you go to the temple and you're Jewish, and even though you're now a follower of Christ, you follow the ritual, um, and Pope Benedict says something that probably got to get some people at least thinking quizzically. She joined the celebration of the Eucharist, the basic structure, which is equally Jewish, namely the great prayer of Thanksgiving. At the core of this Thanksgiving, she placed the account of this institution of the Eucharist. Okay. So he's basically saying the Eucharist goes all the way back to, and his argument is that Catholicism is an outworking of Judaism. And this is an interesting thing for him to say, of course, you know, growing up in Nazi Germany, being yeah. forced to attend the Hitler youth, for him to be connecting the liturgy and the origins of Christian worship to Judaism and doing so proudly uh, in the context of the Holocaust and Catholicism sort of re-examining its relationship to Judaism, uh, for him to say things like that, it's very interesting for those sorts of reasons, too. Well, you know, I think he grew up in a family that was strongly Catholic and strongly anti-Nazi. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, I mean, the Catholic Church had some pretty anti-Jewish stances for a pretty long time. And some of the anti-Semitism in Germany was recognizably Christian, not just this new Hitler thing. And Luther. so for 
Luther. I it wasn't just the Lutherans. Luther didn't make it up either. Uh, you know, the Catholics had a pretty downward look on on Judaism as being basically a religion cursed by God. Um, and, you know, we've seen that even in some of the early church fathers and Constantine said things like that as well. Um, so to be affirming the Jewishness of Christian liturgy is pretty yeah. radical for those sorts of reasons. Yes. And so um, now. So he, here's something. So I'm going to quote a friend of mine. A friend of mine went. He sent his kids to a, a Christian grammar school in Wheaton. And he is a strong high church Anglican. So he's a big, he's a, you know, he, he's a, when we used to worship together, he would prostrate himself during um, Good Friday on the cross for about a half an hour. Uh, and so he said he was at, at, picking up his kids and one of the parents said, oh, I went to a Catholic um, Catholic wedding and they had this, oh, this, this, just this big cross was so awful. Okay. And Charlie said to her, that's, is, is that the, isn't that the center of our worship? Okay. Um, and here's, Pope, I use this story because Pope Benedict comes in and says the cross stands at the center of the Christian liturgy. With all its seriousness, a banal optimism that banishes suffering and injustice from the world with mere talk and reduces being a Christian to niceness has nothing to do with the liturgy of the cross. That's, he's, this is a shot that across the bow that he's taking 50, 60 years ago to, to a like, Christianity. nice Christianity. Yeah. He's yeah, saying, no, that's nonsense. Okay. Yeah. The redemption costs God the suffering and death of his son in the exterior, that is the practice of the exercise of redemption, which is the, what the liturgy is, according to the conciliar document, cannot take place without purification, maturation, involved in following the way of the cross. Okay. That. When I went to, whether it's Willow Creek or other evangelical churches, you just had this empty cross that was sort of a symbol. There was nothing. The only time you talked about the centrality of the cross was was Good Friday. Or the altar call. Right. But that was it. Mm -hmm. And what Pope Benedict is saying, no, is you go to Mass, every time you go to Mass and you're doing the liturgy, that cross is right at the center. It's because you. it's a reminder. Because we keep on forgetting. Judges is a great book about Israel keeping on forgetting God's promises. And we as Christians also forget God's promises all the time, okay? Because we get caught up in other nonsense. So um, so then he says, to the liturgy belongs both speech and silence, singing in the praise of instruments, the visual image, the symbol, and the gesture that corresponds to the word. I put something on Facebook yesterday about how art was used by the Catholic Church before people were literate as a way of evangelization. <laughs> I can't even talk. Evangelization. Thank you very much. Um, it was, um, and Pope Benedict points that 
what we've seen in art is because we've pointed away to God and to ourselves, art has gotten worse and worse and worse, right? To the point now that modern art is a joke. It's, you, we, who is it? Alex O'Connor basically saying, why is, why is the art of people who believe in God so much better than the art of people who don't believe in God? Mm-hmm. Okay, because a good artist who believes in God is pointing away from him or herself to something higher. Instead of looking at us, which it, there's not much of much there to look at at times. Okay, now here's something else that for some of my friends who think uh, he also points out the Pope is not the absolute monarch whose will is law. Rather, he's a guardian of the authentic tradition and thereby the premier guardian of obedience. He cannot do as he likes. He is thereby able to oppose those people who, for their part, want to do whatever comes into their head. His rule is not that of arbitrary power, but that of the obedience of faith. And that's why you you think uh, other popes should read that statement. um, I have no comment. I'm going to be. I'm going to be studiously silent on that issue, yeah. but all I'll have to say is nicely said. Um, okay, here's something else. Um, litur- the Christian liturgy has its origin in the Cenacle, the upper room of the Last Supper, in which the Paschal mystery of death and resurrection was anticipated and opened up for cultic representation. So, as a Catholic Christian. We believe that the taking of the Eucharist is a representation of Christ's death, that we're participating. And one of my friends I go to um, Catholic, uh, our church with, Mark, who was Jewish, who became a Catholic Christian, would say, yes, that's the reason he became a Catholic Christian was the Passover was a representation. They understood. He understood He said, this is the only understandable faith for me as a Christian. And so the Pope Benedict says, our liturgy starts at the Last Supper. And um, he also, he says, what is it, the liturgy? It cannot consist in the church finally subjecting herself to modern culture, which has been caught up to a large extent in the process of self-doubt since it's lost its religious faith. Now, Paul, uh, Bishop Barron points out that the 70s and 80s were the Catholic clown show, okay, where you had this liturgy becoming part of the modern culture. We're going to have guitars. We're going to have all this stuff, and we're going to sing, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And Not a bad song. Not a bad song. Horrible song. Um, and... What happened, and part of why Willow Creek grew so large, was Catholic Christians left the church and said, "We got to find something. We got This is not working. It's horrible." Okay. When I and, was at uh, a Willow Creek-like church in Madison, Wisconsin, I would say between a quarter and a third of the people there were former Catholics. Yep. Um, then, then Pope Benedict starts, you know, talking about how the early church fathers viewed the Eucharist. For the church fathers too, from the earliest witnesses onward, just think of St. Justin Martyr, who we've done, or St. Ignatius of Antioch. 
There was no doubt about the great mystery of the presence bestowed upon us and the change of the gifts during the Eucharistic prayer. Even a theologian of such spirit, spiritualizing tendency as St. Augustine never had a doubt about it. Okay? Now, this is where you start, you know. So for really, I believe, 1,200 years, there was a a unanimity, even though the church had a schism about the Eucharist, okay? There was no divergence about what the Eucharist was. Then we bring, we come into St. Thomas. And St. Thomas writes about the Eucharist, but he's writing it as a scholastic and an, and a, and a, and an Aristotelian. And he really didn't disagree with it, but he brought in Aristotelianism. And what happened was Occam came forward. And Occam took St. Thomas's Aristotelianism and split it. He said, God's up here, spiritual. We're down here, physical. And so what happened was the accidents of the Eucharist became this sort of like, how does Christ become present in the Eucharist physically? And everybody started thinking about that. And obviously, Pope Benedict is not a big fan of Occam. He thinks Occam created a lot of headaches for the church. And I think those headaches um, found, found themselves very prevalent in the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Um, because what happened was his point is that especially Calvin split and put God with Occam way up here, way far away, and put us way down here. Although later on when Benedict talks about Calvin's Eucharistic theology, he admits that Calvin, and this is similar to um, what, oh, why am I forgetting, uh, Brett Sockold. This is similar to what Brett Sockold says that in many ways, a lot of the reformers, including Calvin and Luther, noticed that something was weird about the way that Catholics were talking about the Eucharist and that it was this quasi-physical transformation. And they were trying to get back to a more spiritual understanding of it. And, uh, and we also forget that at the time of the Reformation, regular Catholic folks only took the Eucharist maybe once a year and even then, they only took the bread and not the wine, and only the clergy would regularly participate in the Eucharist. And that the Protestant reformers were often way more emphasizing that everyday regular people should be taking it once a week and to trying to correct some of the confusion that Aquinas, through the lenses of Occam and other later developments, got confused in. Right. And so I, I think that. Sometimes we're like Catholics like Eucharist and liturgy and the Protestants didn't. But in that early phase, it was actually kind of the opposite. And the council changed that. But then what happened is the Baptists came in. (laughs) And that became a whole. uh, We could talk about that a little bit. What's interesting about this is something that I would would. We have to, this is a very, I think, a very salient idea by Pope Benedict. Man cannot simply make worship. 
If God does not reveal himself, man is clutching at empty space. And sometimes, so I was talking to a friend of mine when we went to a church in Wheaton. What they did is they made, created two services concurrently together, traditional and contemporary. And it was funny. Everybody over 50, they, they got surprised. There were more people at the traditional service than they were at the contemporary service. And at times, I will think that the music was man making up worship. You know, and people not worshiping, saying, this is not worship. Something's wrong here. It's a, it's a lot of loud uh, music up to 11. And then there's a message. And why did I come? I could just go on YouTube and see a good Alistair Beggs or Rick Warren video, right? Okay. And, and the point that Pope Benedict's making is that God has to reveal himself. We have to We go to church to worship. Is God revealing himself when we go to church? Do we actually believe it? Or if we don't, you know what? Hey, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I'm going to watch all the, the, the 10 hours before the game. Okay. Um, so he also says the theology, liturgy, in a special way, is a symbolic theology. It's a theology of symbols which connect us to what is present but hidden. Um, on a personal side, my daughter became a Catholic Christian through those symbols. Those symbols had a powerful impact on her that made her explore the Catholic faith. And I think that one of the things that we've tried, done in our society is try to disintermediate symbols, and yet we just create new symbols, whether it's a pride flag, whether it's other symbols, right? Man has to live with symbols. Jonathan Pajot has been very eye-opening on how symbolic we really are. And so the question really is, are we having efficacious symbols or symbols that deteriorate us as, as, as men and women made in the image of God? And I would say that it's better to have efficacious symbols, symbols that point us to God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. Um, he also believes that worship is a fundamental act that affects the whole man. That's why bending a knee is so important. It's the whole person. Why do I, you know, when I first get to church and do the genuflection, I also bend my knee. That's an act of submission. Okay, it's an act of worship. It's so that what I'm when I bend my knee, something is greater than I am. Okay. I am making an ascent that Christ on the cross is greater than I am. I'm bending my knee to that essential fact. Um, and then, and I love this Christian liturgy is liturgy on the way, a liturgy of pilgrimage toward the transfer. Here you go, Sam, towards the transfiguration of the world which will only take place when God is all in all. Amen. Sounds good to me. You like that? I do yeah. like that. Sounds okay. pretty good. 
Um, I another thing that I liked, even though this has the word incarnation, I actually you skipped over this quote, but I actually like this quote. The incarnation is aimed at man's transformation through the cross and to the new corporate cor corporeality of the resurrection. God seeks us where we are, not so that we stay there. That there that the the goal is the transformation of our bodies through the resurrection that was accomplished on the cross. I'm like, I can agree with that. That sounds pretty good to me. Um, and I also like the quote that, well, it's right after the one that you just read. In the Eucharist, a communion takes place that corresponds to the union of men and women in marriage. Just as they become one flesh, so in communion we all become one spirit, one person with Christ. The spousal mystery announced in the Old Testament and the intimate union of God and man takes place in the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, precisely through his passion. That's sort of some mystical symbology for you, but I thought that that was pretty good, too. Yeah, it's I, I, I would say to anybody who's going to watch this, read. Read a lot of Ratzinger. In my mind, he's the greatest theologian of the 20th century because he's really addressing a lot of issues that we're starting to, to really wrestle with now. And he was wrestling with them 50, 60 years ago. Um, uh, the, um, here, here's something else. This, this, my daughter didn't like this quote because my daughter is a, a, a Trinidine um, Catholic. Um, well, here again, we know that until the ninth century, communion was received in the hand standing. His point that he's making is that church tradition does change, but... And so the, the opposite of that would be placed on your mouth while kneeling? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. And so the Trinidine, my Trinidine friends say that's the only way that you could take the Eucharist. And, and Pope... Benedict saying, well, not really. They're, the early church took it by the hand. Mm -hmm. Obviously in reverence. When you take it by your hand, you go like this and you bow, right? And by the way, the priest doesn't let you leave until the Eucharist is in your mouth and you said one word. Amen. You're not going anywhere until, mm -hmm. <laughs> until that happens, okay? Um, so uh, now one of the other things I found interesting, obviously he's read a lot of Augustine says in one place in a servant to his new communicants, no one can receive the communion without first adoring. So what the, the Catholic church has really done is what's called the Eucharistic revival for the last few years, which is the adoration of the Eucharist. Now for a lot of people, they would find that strange, but if here's where I think um, if you, I think a Muslim said this, if you really believe that Christ is in that, you would be dressed properly, you would act properly, right? Okay. And part of that proper acting is adoration. That's, that's the ultimate sacrifice right there. It's Christ's body. Okay. And so there's, there's that adoration. Um, it, and the, Here's the other thing. The goal of the Eucharist is the transformation of those who receive it in authentic communion with his transfer, Christ's transformation. 
And so the goal is unity, that we, instead of being separated individuals who live alongside or in conflict with one another, might become with Christ in him, one organism of self-giving and might live onto the resurrection and the new world. That sounds great. I, I would ask, what does he mean by Christ's transformation there? You'll have to ask him. Right. So like oh, no, for me, not around right now. So for me, this would make perfect sense in, in terms of Jesus being transformed. Jesus becomes a life-giving spirit, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15. For me, like the, the theosis of Jesus, where Jesus transforms from a man into a fully divinized, eternal, uh, life-giving spirit man, and that we participate in that transformation by participating in the Eucharist, looking forward to the day when that transformation will be complete in us, and that we are all one living body of Christ, one organism together, living into the resurrection in the new world. Well, that sounds great. I like how this is his theology is not just focused on going to heaven when you die, but focused on the resurrection and the new creation. I feel like that's something that Catholics often miss, but it's, I, I find it encouraging to see this in, in Benedict. Although I'm not going to just pick on Catholics. Evangelicals seem to miss that just as much as the Catholics, for the record. Well, that, that's why I, I really appreciate Pope Benedict's writings on this, because it really, it, it, as Jacques Ellul once said, it gets us back into Hickett, no, it's the here and now. You can't just be. It's got to be. That's a deep now. track quote, quoting Alul. Yeah, showing off there a little bit, Hank. Well, you know, the old dog has a few tricks, my friend. <laughs> I just don't troll Paul Vanderclay, okay? Although he is easy to troll. Um, All right, tell me about music, Hank. I know that well, music is something near and dear to your heart. Uh, right. For those who it, don't it, know, Hank comes from a family of wonderful musicians and uh, is a great musician himself. Yes. Well, um, I love these quotes because, man, he said it better than I ever could. Pop music is a manufactured industrial mass production like technical goods in a totally inhuman and dictatorial system. Okay. <laughs> Amen. Tell me what you really think. Well, so, so he was not a fan of Taylor Swift. Right. Mass culture is thus geared to quantity, production, and success. It is a culture of the measurable and marketable. Pop music joins up with that culture. Saying, no, we can't have that. Okay? The, you and I have a friend who goes to church up in the North Shore who refuses to go until the sermon starts because he calls modern Christian music awful. Right. He just says it's awful. He went to my daughter's baptism and wrote in Facebook. He goes, I don't understand the Catholic Church, but at least it doesn't have that awful praise music. OK. If you're going to church and you think that music is awful, something's wrong, either with you or with the church. OK. Well, the church that I went to in Wheaton proved that maybe the problem is with the music. If more than half the people on a Sunday crowd overcrowd into a chapel rather than at the big theater right that the church had maybe you should be asking yourself a question is the music that we're putting on the right type of music is it really praiseworthy if people every basically the crowd says we're over here i'll listen i want to listen to the old hymns okay 
that, and I think Pope Benedict saw this quite a while, 50 years ago, that the pop music infestating the services actually, I think, detracts from worship. It doesn't enhance worship. Um, and, and I'll speak as somebody who played at Willow Creek, and we played the pop music, okay? I, I it It's bounded in time. If you listen to most pop music of a certain generation, it's, it's, it's not long lasting. Okay. It's, it's bounded in that time. Whereas if you listen to Mozart or great jazz, it's, it, it transforms you and it, it's timeless. It good music should, should actually make you look outside yourself to other things. It, good Christian music should make you look to, to the Lord. So, um, and he, he brings up that this, this was the fascination that the early church had with Greek music, and the early church had to say, no, you can't have this. He, he points out that this Greek music helped create Gnosticism. Okay. Um, so he comes up in the sense that taking up of music into the liturgy must be its taking up into the spirit, a transformation that implies both death and resurrection. That is why the church has to be critical of all ethnic music. It cannot be allowed untransformed into the sanctuary. Now, he was... Is he, Mozart ethnic music? Is Bach ethnic music? Is, this, is there a little bit of German snobbery in this? I can't help but wonder. <laughs> Although if, if any race was allowed to be snobbish about their musical accomplishments, I suppose it would be the Germans. I had a friend of mine who's an atheist said, or, or no, he's a agnostic said he could he only believes in God because only God could have created Mozart. Because <laughs> okay. um, I think that in America it's interesting. You know, there's the old hymns and then there's the new contemporary music, but we forget about African American spiritual music and gospel yeah. music, and that's one of those things where. It is a very different style than hymns and classical music, but it has an authenticity and a lastingness to it that I think transcends its context. But every music has a context. And, and so I think that, anyway, that wasn't my favorite quote of the episode, but I'll let you continue. It's mine. Um, <laughs> that's why, you know, again, Sam and I are showing how we could disagree friendly. Okay. Now, in art, one of the things that I like to point out on Facebook is I like to put pictures of Catholic churches. And Catholic churches look completely different than Protestant churches, right? So here's Pope Benedict. The beauty of the cathedral does not stand in opposition to the theology of the cross, but it, it's fruit. It was born from the willingness not to build one city by oneself and for oneself. The misuse of something just for oneself is, of course, not excluded by this. No church building possesses the promise of eternity. None is irreplaceable. Each one can be taken from us when the power justifying it crumbles. So he's not. But the idea that churches were built because it held the mystery. It was also the churches did so much, especially in the Gothic period, that I think modern man doesn't understand. It was for worship, but it was also for teaching. And what I mean by teaching is the art was the teacher. We all, we're, we have a presentism saying, well, we all can read, it's all the scriptura, 
Well, that's great if you can read. But most people 800, 900, 1,000 years ago were illiterate. It was the invention of the printing press that created the acceleration of literacy. So how do you teach people who can't read about the promises and the love and, and the, the beauty of the, of, of the Christian faith? Through art. Why do people still go to Catholic cathedrals today, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, and are just awe-inspired by the art, by the stained glass windows, by the beauty? Why does Alice O'Connor say, how come we can't build things like this? The reason you can't build things like this is because you're worshiping something else. And it, it takes intergenerational faithfulness to a project to build something like a cathedral. And what sort of thing can foster intergenerational faithfulness? Right. Which is why when we, we speak of people creating their own religions, very rarely is there interfaithful. Intergenerational, intergenerational faithfulness. faithfulness. There's just really. Right. Now, the other thing is. Yeah. So let's move on to your most favorite subject, and that is the errors of John Calvin. Um, so. So here, here's, I think, maybe something we could contend with with our, our friend Tripp. Um, we have characterized Calvin's understanding as a theology of the ascension, okay, which, however, in spite of several attempts along these lines, lacks the necessary dialectical reinforcement with incarnational theology, so that Christianity has no more here, but is referred completely to the there, namely to the heaven, to the afterlife. Okay. I, I think, think that's right about that. <laughs> that's a great insight. Okay. I think, and he's not mean to Calvin. If you read him, he's not like, you know, um, but he, he's, he, what he does, he, he actually read the Institutes of the Christian Theology and Calvinism and takes him seriously and then seriously says, here's some, much like Servetus tried to take Calvin seriously. It's, it's funny. I wish Calvinists would take Calvin seriously. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think Tripp does, but I think a lot of Calvinists have become something that, that I can't, I don't think even Calvin would understand. Um, but yeah, that it's so focused on going up to heaven when you die, because right. the down here is just bad and icky. Correct. And, yeah. and, and I would tell you that I believe Calvin is not addressing Augustine or the Catholic Church. He's addressing Occam. Mm -hmm. Okay. Remember, it's, it, we'll have another quote. It's um, Calvin endeavored to restore Augustine's Eucharistic teaching as faithfully as possible. So I want to want to give props to people who who really understand Calvin. Of course, upon closer inspection, his attempt shows that there is no such thing as simple renewal of the past. One cannot do do a thousand years of history. There's no going back from the formulation of questions once they've been broached. And he's really saying there's three guys who broached the questions that Calvin was trying to contend with. And they weren't Augustine. They were Duns Scotus, Berengarius, and Occam. And the church had some real problems with those three characters. Okay. Um, and I think that um, we are always people of our time. So the questions that
Calvin was going after, Augustine didn't even contemplate. They weren't there. They weren't something that he would even think about. Um, okay, so then, moreover, the word transubstantiation recalls the self-alienation of Eucharistic doctrine that was largely dominant well into our century. The emphasis in teaching about the sacrament shifted from active association with the risen Lord who grants us fellowship with himself to a static ontological perspective that in mentality strongly tinged with monophysitism skips over the humanity of Jesus Christ. So here, hold on, Sam. He's with you, isn't he? He's saying you can't skip over the humanity of Jesus Christ. It simply considers the host as the locus of God's presence as God's earthly throne before the one before which one adores, while almost forgetting the invitation to table fellowship, contrary to the original reason for the institution of the sacrament. So he's going back to the initial cynical where Jesus has table fellowship with the apostles. Mm -hmm. He's saying that's what Jesus is calling to us now, table fellowship. Yes, there's adoration, but there's also the table fellowship, the community, the being together, that Christ is here. He's just not up there. You know, it's here's a question I have that you cannot. The idea that okay, there was the new the the New Testament was written and everything's done and we're just waiting for the for the uh, we're waiting for the rapture. That's not how God works. God is active today. Okay, uh, it's it's not like well you know, this Bible we go to church we learn the teachings of the New Testament. Yeah, maybe some of the Old Testament, but the Old Testament's icky. That's a nasty God. He's, you know, he's uh, he's he's not the nice one that Jesus is. And um, I think Pope Benedict sort of calls out both the Protestant Church, but he's calling out the Catholic Church. He's calling out the Thomas, saying you've you've done you've disintermediated God too far. We need to bring him back. That was. That was the liturgical tradition that he was bringing back and that you're starting to see coming into the church, even through Pope Francis, okay? There's, I think the church, the Catholic church has really changed. And it's funny, in my in our Bible study, much of them with older Catholics, they say, we were never taught this mm -hmm. when we were growing up. It's been the last 10 years they've been taught this. That is the final outworking of all the years that Benedict was laboring in the field, that it's now become a, a, a living part of the Catholic Church for, for the Mass. And I, I think it's wonderful. Um, and this would be one of my critiques of perhaps an overemphasis on liturgy and um, that sort of thing, is that it has a tendency to devolve into a dry proceduralism where people are so um, focused on the motions and what just going through the motions is able to accomplish that it forgets to add this teaching part too. And it's like, well, as long as people are doing the right thing, then they, then that's enough really. What, what more do you need for the regular person than that they're going through the motions and doing the right thing? And that if you don't have this connection to the mind and the teaching and the understanding of what's happening, that it doesn't have its proper effect. And I think that's why a lot of Catholics left the faith in the late 20th century. Oh, absolutely. 
it's and and I think that why you're seeing it's funny what you're seeing is the the current crop of Catholics coming up, a lot of them have come from Calvinism. Okay. And have have actually interacted with Ratzinger. They all have one thing in common. They seem to really love Ratzinger. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they've had a great uh, profound effect within now that view of the Eucharist is already a big big in the African church. Okay. And you're seeing it taking hold in the American church. And I think it's going to have a profound effect. And I, I would contend, regardless, the problem with Western Christianity writ large, whether it's Catholic, Orthodox, is the lack of catechism, the lack of teaching, the lack of why are we doing stuff. It's not it's sort of like have you have your kid have you had your kids watch Babe the uh, Pig? No, no. Watch it. It's a great movie. But there's a cow that says the way things are, are the way things are. When asked why are we, the pig would say, "Why are we doing this?" Well, the way things are, are the way things are. When you when your teaching is the way things are, the way things are, do not be surprised when people start leaving the faith. Mm-hmm. Do not be surprised when people walk away. You have to explain to them. Sometimes in granular detail to some people exactly why we're doing what we're doing peter t- peter peter told us to have an answer right you got it if i yes i will tell you that if i go to our church in wheaton st michael's i can just go through the motions no mm-hmm. say the say the liturgy you know say the creeds take the eucharist call it a day but if my heart and my mind has been transformed by Christ, then the liturgy has such a profound effect. Now, that's, that profound effect should not only be the effect right there and now, but the profound effect should be ongoing. Now, so, uh, and I think that's, I think Pope Benedict, gives us a really good insight, but what what he's doing is he's really connecting us back to the early church and the church fathers. He's, he's trying to connect us to a deeper tradition that was lost, I, I believe, when scholasticism hit. So uh, that's, uh, that's my, uh, my uh, review of uh, Pope Benedict and the liturgy. Well, I thought that those... I thought that was very interesting. Um, I like what Benedict says that that liturgy properly done is embodied theology, and that it's getting your your body and your soul active in the practice of theology, and that it's getting your mind not just to be thinking but doing, and that these things all complement each other. That there is a bridge between the liturgy and your theology and your teachings and that it is um, symbolically representative of the work and accomplishments of what God did through Christ. I think that's a very profound thing. I like his emphasis on resurrection in the new world. 
Uh, I would be curious what he meant by the transformation of Christ, uh, because as far as I understand, uh, you know, you can't be can't have too heavy of an emphasis on the incarnation and uh, believe that Jesus gets transformed into something more glorious later. Um, but so I, I, I found that all very encouraging. Well, it's um, one of these days, there's a guy that I'm trying to get a conversation with who is a, a, a theologian with the word on fire, who's mm -hmm. a Benedict expert. He's wrote his dissertations on Benedict. He would be a very interesting person to have a conversation with. Well, get him on and we'll talk to him. Sounds like a plan. Uh, I appreciate uh, you allowing me to do a little chit-chatting. Oh, it's my pleasure, Hank. Uh, happy to, to learn from what you've been learning about. So uh, thanks for doing this. Yeah, that, by the way, what's the next church father? That, that... We, we need to do ba Basil the Great is um, who we're on. And I've been dragging my feet on that. Uh, but yeah, we need to dig into Basil the Great. Maybe one of his March. best books is on the Holy Spirit. So, But yeah. well, while we do that in March, um, ladies and gentlemen, I'll be in Florida because there's nothing worse than being in Illinois in February. Oh man, today is not a great day to be in Illinois. The weather is just icky. <laughs> yep, yeah. yeah I, I'm you know, God has called Kate and Hank to uh, Florida for as long as we could possibly stand it, which could be for a long time. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'm jealous. I'm going to Florida in March, but. Uh, Good. Uh, hey, anytime you can leave Illinois, the problem is that you come back to Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> well, so Illinois has a great summer and fall. I feel yes. like we, we're good at that. Although this summer is going to be the year of the cicadas. Did you hear about this? That 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 for the first time since like the early 1800s, the 13-year cicada, which comes out every 13 years, is coming out this year. There's also a 17-year cicada, which is also coming out this year, in addition to just the regular amount of cicadas, which is a lot. And the only place in the United States where the 13-year cicada overlaps with the 17-year cicada, guess where that is, Hank? Illinois. Northern Illinois, especially Chicagoland. We're like the only place in the world that gets a double whammy of cicadas. This can't. Year. Thanks for thanks for making my day, Sam. Looks like I'll be sitting in uh, in North stay Carolina in Florida in a little longer. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah I might well, have anyway. to stay longer. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thanks, Hank. Thanks everyone right. else for listening.